there was a coalition soldier who was wounded, had a severe head and neck uh, injury, and they had just rotated their their head and neck surgeon out like the day before. And then uh, there was a there was a gap in the the next individual arriving, so I was able to just be at the right place, right time, and uh, take care of that. I think that there are no coincidences. I think that some of those experiences, as I said, it's about being there. And I, I'm so proud of what we did in the theater and the American military medical capability that we, we were able to build and, and provide for folks over there. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. Richard W. Thomas to Wardocs. Dr. Thomas is a board-certified otolaryngologist and head and neck surgeon, and is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. General Thomas retired after 26 years of service, and while on active duty, he held many strategic leadership roles, including Director of Healthcare Operations and Chief Medical Officer for the DHA, Surgeon General of U.S. Forces Afghanistan, Chief of the Army Medical Corps, and Assistant Surgeon General. Following military service, Dr. Thomas served as the sixth president of the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of Dr. Thomas's experiences deploying to combat and rendering surgical care and providing strategic leadership for battlefield medical support. He also describes the issues faced in executing the plan to set up the Defense Health Agency, as well as the role and importance of USUS, America's medical school. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon Dr. Kevin Neary. Today we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. Richard Tom Thomas to War Docs. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks very much, Doug. It's my pleasure to be here. So, General Thomas, tell us a little bit how you decided to join the Army Medicine Team. You know, Kevin, I think that like a lot of folks, I came in because I was going to get something, right? I come from a military family. My father was most of his career in Special Forces, retired as a Sergeant Major. And so I was familiar with the military, but I wanted to go to college. And so I got an ROTC scholarship. And based on that, I had ROTC obligation, but I did apply to dental school and was on a education delay so I could go to dental school. So that's kind of how it started for me. So you graduated from undergraduate and medical and dental school at West Virginia University, and your training pathway was somewhat circuitous to get from dental school, joining the dental corps, ultimately going to medical school, getting an MD, and then joining the Army Medical Corps. Can you tell us a little bit what led you to those decisions to ultimately wind up uh, a medical corps officer? Sure. It's kind of about chances and choices. As I mentioned, I had a four-year obligation from my uh, ROTC. Now, when I was in dental school, the HPSP program, Health Profession Scholarship Program, had been suspended for dental for a few years or so. If I had had that scholarship, which I would have taken, that would have increased my obligation and kind of changed a lot of things for me. But I graduated from dental school and I was assigned to Panama. And I lived there when I was a kid you know, with my dad and I uh, went back there. And this is when they were implementing a phasing in the Carter-Trios Treaty, which was giving the canal zone back to the Panamanians. So it was a little bit different at that time, but it was a great experience for me working there as a dental corps officer. And I did a lot of civic action, working with the docs and the nurses and the medics. And I really became interested in the medical side of things during that time. And in those days, you had to have four years 
in before you could even apply for a residency in dentistry. And I was doing a lot of oral surgery and thought that I was going to do that. But as I had these experiences in Panama, I was really thinking hard about going back to medical school. And my next assignment from Panama, I went to the 82nd Airborne Division. And uh, that kind of solidified or confirmed to me in my mind that experience that I was going to go back to medical school. So I did. We previously interviewed Brigadier General Sean Bagby, a dentist specializing in maxillofacial trauma and reconstruction. Our listeners may not know that there is a difference between ENT and oral and maxillofacial surgery specialties. Can you help us understand these differences? Sure. This is, this is a common thing. It gets confusing. But basically, oral maxillofacial surgery is a dental specialty. So guy or gal goes to dental school, and they graduate, and they choose a specialty to go into. And they could go into orthodontics or pediatric dentistry, or in this case, oral maxillofacial surgery. Great specialty. ENT, or otolaryngology, is a medical specialty. So someone goes to medical school and decide they want to you know, become an ENT doctor. They, they do a residency in ENT, ear, nose, and throat. And these two specialties complement each other in many ways. In fact, if it hadn't been for my dental background, I doubt I would have gone into ENT. There's a lot of overlap there. And so during my career in managing patients and training residents, I always emphasize collaboration between those specialties for that reason. Now, the oral surgery guys are really tremendous, especially in, in trauma care. And there's a lot that we can learn from them on the medical side of the house and vice versa. So when you have residencies in both at a given site, like we did at Madigan, for example, we did a lot of uh, cross-pollinization because the guys will work t- together later on, oftentimes managing patients in a deployed setting. So it's a good compliment to have them together and collaborating. So let's go back to your first deployment. You're in the dental corps, you're with the 82nd Airborne, and you're involved in Operation Just Cause back in Panama. What stood out to you from that experience? Yeah, you know, I went to the 82nd Airborne Division, and in those days we had we still had the med battalion. And so I was in 307th Med. My first battalion commander, I remember, was my own Kim, and he was followed by Fred Gerber. And those are names that I think many of your listeners will be familiar with. They're you know, both great commanders and great mentors, as a matter of fact. And during the Operation Just Cause, when we deployed the medical capability from the 82nd down there, I managed a lot of facial trauma, for sure. I felt I was very well trained for this, and I was able to, to deal with that. And we took care of the trauma we did. Of course, the U.S. folks, we would evacuate. I assisted uh, the docs and the PAs and the medics with uh, patient care. I also was involved in delivering eight or nine babies during that that deployment. That was a new uh, experience for me. And as I said, I was already thinking about going back to medical school, and that just kind of confirmed in my mind that that was uh, the route that I was going to go. So does dental school have an obstetrics elective? (laughs) No, it's all in how you position the chair, really. Um, just kidding. You know, they know that they really don't. And it's funny that there's a lot of evolution of the training in dental school, medical school. And I think that, as I mentioned before, a little bit of cross-pollination is a good thing where the uh, medical students learn a little bit more about dentistry and vice versa. That would be good. But we certainly didn't have any obstetrics when I was in dental school. Do any of the cases that you had in Panama stick out in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. We did have a number of U.S. troops that had facial trauma and we were able to, to stabilize them and to initiate their care as a a higher level of care, if you will, doing the necessary extractions, uh, getting some of the the fragments out of the way, doing some initial closures and uh, stabilizing the patients for evacuation. So that was what kept us pretty busy at that time. It was a brief deployment. I think we were there for about 30 days, but there was certainly a lot of trauma to deal with at that time. How did the patients get uh, evacuated out of Panama? What we did was we would uh, put them on... uh, rotary wing and take them down to Howard Air Base, and then they would fly back to uh, San Antonio. That was the the path for the um, evacuation, medical evacuation at the time. So you're the division surgeon for the 101st Airborne Division and the 47th Combat Support Hospital Commander. 
What led you to pursue these operational medicine roles as a surgical subspecialist? And how did those assignments shape your future career? I was a staff surgeon at Madigan and I was, you know, nearing the end of my commitment and I was thinking about getting out. And uh, George Waitman, then Colonel George Waitman, who had been my division surgeon when I was in 82nd, was the MC assignments branch officer at the time. And uh, he spoke with me and asked me what I wanted to do. And we talked and he's always been a good mentor to me and and a friend. And uh, he convinced me to uh, be a division surgeon. So with the 101st, at the time, it was Major General Dick Cody, later the vice chief of staff of the Army. He selected me and I went uh, to the 101st in June of 01. And then 9-11, of course, changed everything for everyone. 02, early 02, we had Afghanistan, 101st units. And then 03, we did, we did Iraq. And uh, so certainly some very busy times. And while I was in Iraq, the first tour in 03, I was selected for command. And uh, over the years, I've always counseled officers that I've, that I've been talking to, that, hey, you got to check your files and make sure your files are in order. But we were deployed, so I didn't have an opportunity to do that. And it was an opt-out situation. So I popped on the command list, and I remember General Petraeus at the time called me in and said, hey, Doc, you're on the command list. It's a good thing. And they were taking a couple of the, the caches that were in so-called caretaker status, and they were going to convert them to full-up caches. And uh, so they gave me a choice. And I remember talking from Iraq with our then Surgeon General, General Peak, who's, who's always been a, a tremendous mentor to me about it. And uh, I took the 47th cache. It was a good outfit out of Fort Lewis. And so what was going to be, you know, about two year assignment for me as a division surgeon now, now was going to be a lot longer. We had no idea how long this war was going to last, but I went ahead and took the assignment with the cash and we redeployed to Iraq in support of combat operations. So when you were with the 101st Airborne Division as division surgeon and went to Afghanistan, were you primarily just in a division surgeon role or were you doing some clinical stuff too? I was over there because one of the issues is when you were early in the game, no matter where you are, you're trying to mature the medical theater of operations. And Afghanistan had a lot of challenges, certainly the tyranny of terrain with those long evacuation routes. And so point of injury care and getting the folks that uh, maturing the medical footprint, if you will. So we went over to do that. But of course, you're there and and you have an opportunity. I did operate when I was there. I operated with some of the forward surgical teams that were there. If they happened to be have a head and neck case or something I could assist with uh, or, or do the case, I would do that. We had, as I recall, between Afghanistan and the first time we went to Iraq, again, that was initial invasion in Iraq in 03. Even though I was the division surgeon, you're a physician and you're a surgeon and you have a capability. So you want to lean in. Uh, we had organic forward surgical team at that time. So I could watch very closely what they had. I remember having several cases of, of neck injuries and uh, ligating carotids in some patients and things like that. You got to do what you got to do. And uh, we had good outcomes, fortunately, in, in just about all those cases. You said that the the caches were being reconstituted and it's early in OIF. And so the 47th cache gets deployed. Was the cache divided up like most of the caches were later in the war? When, when did that start happening? It did happen then because even though that it was the different configuration for the caches, that time the 47th was a 300 bed hospital and we hadn't done the MRI conversions. We weren't as modular as they are now. And so what we did was we had to do the best we could in, in carving out sections of the hospital. We had folks up in southern Iraq. We had a major footprint in uh, Kuwait. And uh, we were the, the hub for receiving casualties out of, out of theater you know, and transporting them out. So we had a significant capability. We're the biggest hospital in theater at the time with a lot of capability. I think back on that, I think our profis, doctors and nurses, we had profis from, I think it was 17 different MTFs during that deployment. So it was uh, all hands on deck. And the cash was 
again, based out of Fort Lewis, now JBLM, but they relied heavily on the Profus filler system to go ahead and, and become fully functional. So we were able to chop smaller elements and put them where they were needed in theater. So that was early in the conflicts. And we all know that the surgeons especially got a lot of trauma experience in those early days. But the early units that went over, the people really hadn't seen trauma like that in combat, maybe since Vietnam. How did they do in the early deployments with the 47th that you observed? Well, there's definitely a learning curve there. And I think that when you're talking about medical readiness, you're talking about a busy hospital is a ready hospital where everyone's doing what they need to do. That's as true today as it, as it has been ever. So we had folks who were coming from situations where they were quite busy, typically in the practices and in the MTS where they came from. But you're right, they hadn't operated in uh, this setting necessarily. Some of the caches had trained and focused on taking folks out in the field and getting some training opportunities, but that's still limited. There's nothing like the real thing. Not to say they really did step up. They stepped up. They had to adjust to using equipment that they weren't always familiar with. And so you talk about the walker dip. That's certainly what we were seeing here. Anesthesia machines were, were dated back to the Vietnam era and things like that. So we've modernized our capabilities dramatically since those deployments and over the course of the last two conflicts we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan. But that's what we're supposed to do as a learning organization. We're supposed to take our TTPs and, and, and learn to do better with them. Just for the audience who, we, we get feedback that we use a lot of acronyms. So TTPs. Yeah, we do use acronyms. We uh, give whole speeches in that techniques, tactics, and practices. So what we want to do is take those things and generate lessons learned and try to you know, improve our capabilities. It's about performance enhancement. And uh, so we did that. We uh, did an after-action review on, on pretty much everything we did, as did other hospitals and theaters. So you saw the course of the, of the last 20 years of continuous combat operations, you've seen a tremendous transformation of military medicine because of that. Well, speaking of which, General Thomas, you served in combat tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. What were some of the similarities and differences you observed? That's an interesting question, Kevin. I mean, I think that similarities would be, in, I think, in areas like, certainly in the early operations, when you go into a, an immature theater and you're trying to mature your medical capabilities, establish the right medical footprint so you can take care of folks. And then you've got combat care, certainly port of injury care, and then you've got your, your echelons of care. The similarities, I think, are the same between Iraq and Afghanistan in that respect. Both presented a challenge with what I call the tyranny of terrain. There were very long evacuation routes and certainly different terrain in Iraq, more desert, whereas Afghanistan had desert to the west, but certainly more mountainous, much more mountainous in the east. So different types of terrain, but you had those long evacuation routes and, and uh, providing that point of injury care and then evacuating those patients back to higher echelon care. Both had challenges in that way. And by the way, no other nation can do what we do. I mean, that's a key factor in what U.S. military medicine brings to the fight. And you asked about some differences. I think the, the differences between Iraq and Afghanistan, one of the big ones was the infrastructure. When we went into Iraq in 2003, it was an up-and-coming second world nation and, and uh, a lot different as, as far as going into Afghanistan, which was you know more fifth century in many ways. And uh, so a totally different you know, set of problems for you in that, in that respect. So later on, you served as the commander of Blanchfield Army Community Hospital at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. How does a military physician prepare to be the hospital CEO? And what was your most challenging leadership encounter while you were in command? Now, let's see. I think we're all kind of victims of our experiences. When I left the command of the Combat Support Hospital, I went to the Army War College for a year, and then I was assigned to the Pentagon in Manpower and Reserve Affairs. And I wasn't really sure about going there, but General Waitman and and General Schoomaker, who was the medical corps chief at the time, assured me that it was going to be a good thing for me. Not that they gave me any choice on that. 
But so the mentorship was key to me, I think, in developing someone, because you look at these traditional roots or traditional pathways. What is that? I look at some of the folks who have been mentors to me, the Phil Volpe's, the Elder Grangers, and, and so many others, and they don't, they have some similarities in how they, they were prepared, but there were significant differences in how they, they grew up. In my case, I had pretty much equal time in a TDA or fixed facility as I did for the MTO or deployable units. And I think that was an advantage for me. I had positions of responsibility in both. And so that enabled me, I think, to, to be a better commander of Blanchfield Army Community Hospital at Fort Campbell, which was a great assignment, by the way. And uh, back with the unit, the 101st being the primary unit there, at that time, we had a great command team. General Schlosser was the CG. He had a couple assistant division commanders, one named General McConville, one named General Milley, who we got a chance to serve with. And so they were all very supportive of the medical mission. But they were, again, they were very busy times for us. And the 101st was deploying again. And so I think probably the major challenge at Fort Campbell when I was there was supporting those deploying units and and the family members of the 101st Airborne Division, the the 5th Special Forces Group, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, and various other units. And that was the big challenge. But I was fortunate. Once again, I had a great team. I had a great Sergeant Major, Sayakana. Mike Heimel, who was my DCA, uh, knows how to to run a hospital better than anyone. My DCCS at the time was uh, Rocky Wasserman. So a good team, and we were supported very well by our then region, the Southeast region at the time. And General Don Bradshaw was our was our boss, and, and he was always leaning forward to help us out. So we were the busiest spot for sure, but we did have great support, and we were able to, to rise to the challenge of supporting those deploying units, deploying and then redeploying units with all the challenges that come with that. Large wounded warrior population, as you can imagine, and that was a, a different way of doing medicine, but it was good. I was promoted uh, to one star out of that job and then sent back to the Pentagon as the assistant surgeon general, General Schoolmaker was the surgeon. So no good deed goes undone, right? So you also served as the chief of the U.S. Army Medical Corps. What issues were facing Army medicine at the time, and how were you able to improve Army medicine? Well, my old boss, General Schoolmaker, he was the, then the surgeon general, and had been the medical corps chief. And he's a great mentor, and he's the one that uh, said, "Hey, I want you to do this job. Great, you'll be fine." And I was already the assistant surgeon general at the time, and I was working very closely, not only with, with the surgeon general and the team at the OTSG and, and MedCom, but very closely with the vice chief of staff, the Army General Corelli, Pete Corelli at the time, who was certainly one of the most passionate, tremendous senior leaders and really was interested in the medical capability. So getting tagged as a medical corps chief, it kind of worked well with some of the things we were already doing. We had a TBI task force, for example, that we started and that really got the ball rolling as far as changing the culture with respect to those injuries. We also had a pain management task force to address the kind of the emerging drug addiction and, and opiate problems we were seeing in the force. And we had support not only from the medical side, but the, the lines, you know, General Corelli and others, they supported us in this. And General Casey was the chief at the time. So as medical court chief specifically, I think some of our issues are probably age old to the medical court chief. You look at retention issues and recruitment issues. I think those are some of the big ones we had. On the retention side, though, we always have had some great tools to use. The training tool is a, is a huge one. Our GME programs are really crucial for us to retain a, a high-quality medical corps. As I said, people come in the service typically because they're getting something. They're getting a, a scholarship or they're getting a bonus or what have you. Health profession scholarship program is a big way to do that. But they stay for other reasons. They stay because they're members of a team, or you have that training opportunity, you want to do another residency or another fellowship or something like that. I did notice some challenges with some of our our folks on retention, which we addressed individually. 
But the recruitment side is pr- primarily the health profession scholarship program. It's the big, the big uh, supplier and the Uniformed Services University. And as the medical corps chief, I needed about 300 new docs a year, 300. And I only got about 60 from the university, and they, they were predictably high-quality folks. And uh, so the rest of them, an HPSP, Health Profession Scholarship Program, is kind of a bell-shaped curve. So you have some outstanding folks on the one end. You have some folks that not so much. But the great equalizer, I think, that we used was that graduate medical education, where we get folks in it. We can make sure that they train to the standard, and they're going to be good docs, or they're not going to be with us. So that's why it's so vital to maintain, I think, that capability, that structure that we built in the AMED. So at the end of my career, I had a chance to work for the medical corps chief and physician retention and job satisfaction always seemed to be on the plate of the chief. And monetary compensation is always near the top of the list of reasons that especially physicians choose to separate when their initial obligation is fulfilled. And I was just curious because you're in the room with the strategic leaders of Army and DOD. Should addressing military civilian pay inequity be a priority, or is the status quo acceptable if there's really no perceived shortage of physicians in the services? You know, I, I think you have to address it. Now listen, we're never going to be comparable to pay with the civilian sector, and that was never the intent. But you have to show a little bit of respect to the physicians. Now, I remember when I was the Corps Chief, when I initially took over from General Holly Boland, I looked at the stats, and uh, some of our retention numbers uh, were lower in some of the pediatric and the, the primary care specialties. And uh, so I, I did some surveys to find out what was going on with the folks and uh, certainly did some exit interviews. And what it was, was it wasn't pay. Again, people stay for other reasons. And uh, even though they could have an assignment or they could have a training opportunity or something like that, they were leaving because I felt in many cases they were being overworked, multiple deployments, you know, taking a pediatrician and putting him or her in as a brigade surgeon and doing multiple rounds and they were tired. And uh, the retention was, was very low at the time. I went to the health professions working group and uh, I talked to them about increasing the pro-pay for a couple of those specialties. And uh, frankly, the non-Army folks didn't really care because they didn't have the same problems that we were seeing in the Army. And it's supposed to be a unified effort when they make a proposal to, to change the uh, professional pay on any specialty. They all have to agree. But we told them we're going to do it anyway for the Army and they can get on board or not. So we, we gave a very modest increase in pro-pay to the uh, pediatric and I think the family medicine uh, folks. And Doug, I don't remember what it was. It, w- it wasn't very much at all, you know, at 3,000, 5,000, I don't recall, but it was modest. And our retention skyrocketed. And in part because of that, because someone was paying attention to them and listening to what they said. Another way we actually addressed the uh, retention issue was it was very high op tempo when I was the medical corps chief. We had two theaters of operation going uh, full guns and uh, guys were rotating. I had some docs and some specialties that didn't deploy much. And they came to me and they said, I'd like to deploy. I, it's something I want to do, but you know, I'm a certain flavorologist and they don't need me. So I put these guys, you know, we make sure we get them into positions where they could deploy as maybe a brigade surgeon or what have you. And that made a difference for so many of them. They understood the it of what we do in military medicine. And many of them came back from those tours and stayed in because of that experience. They wanted to have that experience and they did a good job. And so they, they could actually relate to what military medicine is all about. So we had a very high, when I was a Corps Chief, we had a very high retention rate of our physicians. And I think it has a lot to do with the, the high op tempo that we had, or operation tempo, I'm using acronyms again, operation tempo, guys going, because the docs knew that they were, they were needed and they were making a difference. I fully agree with you because back in those days, the physicians and the healthcare team really understood their why. They, they knew why they wore that uniform. 
they knew they were needed downrange. They saw the impact that they could make. And unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, we don't have those conflicts where people are in danger as much. But I think we're losing that. And that's why we're seeing it's harder to attract people you know, into the organization and keep people because they don't have that why anymore. I would agree with you. Again, we're all victims of our experience. I think that what we're also facing in the future, there's very real and significant physician shortage. You know, all the predictions are by 2013, we're going to be clamoring. We're all competing with the same, with, with each other for the same high value target of physicians and not just federal medicine, but the civilian sector needs those folks too. And there's going to be a shortage. So that's why what we've built here, the training base that we have in the medical community is, is more important now than ever. We've got to make sure that we ensure that, that we keep that capability intact or we won't have, you know, we won't have this, uh, the doctors or the advanced practice nurses or the, the healthcare, allied healthcare professionals that we need to uh, sustain the fighting strength. So you then served as the Surgeon General for U.S. Forces Afghanistan. Tell us about that assignment and how that combat leadership role was necessary for military medicine. And then do you have any memorable experiences from that assignment? Were you able to get into the OR at all as a commander? I've always uh, tried to keep my hand in, in the clinical practice as much as possible. and I've, I've been pretty successful doing that. As the U.S. Forces uh, Surgeon General, and we also served as for the ISAF side, the, that's the International Security Assistance Force. As you think back to that time, this is 2011 to 12. My gosh, it's already been 10 years ago. With increased combat operations, especially in the OEF operation, Enduring Freedom and the Afghan Theater of Operations, there was really a recognized need for kind of senior level, GO level, general officer level leadership. And there's some demands from the theater to have a medical general officer downrange to kind of oversee medical operations and really kind of enable the unity of effort from the medical side. We had a lot of things going on, very busy times in, in Afghanistan. And as you may recall, the SecDef Gates at the time was, was adamant about the golden hour for evacuation of wounded. And so we were able to establish, increase the number of air medevac capabilities, uh, capability in theater, brought in a large number of aircraft and crews and medics so we could have those, those assets available to not only the U.S., but also, remember, it's a multinational coalition force. And yeah, I remember having meetings uh, on the medical side as the Surgeon General with our coalition partners. And you might have you know 50 people sitting around the table, but I can tell you they all wanted what only the U.S. medical support was capable of. We were a true more force multiplier there. And so they want the best for their soldiers too. So even though we had increased uh, wound severity scores during this time, we had increased survivability numbers because we had medics on site. The number one rule for the medic is to be there and make sure you get a trained medic or corpsman with those patients. That's why we have medic, you know, medics and corpsmen welcome with the, the, the infantry and the Marines to take care of them and then get that evacuation out. So those, those challenges as the U.S. Forces Surgeon, we matured the theater dramatically and we had some memorable experiences. I remember one time going in to visit an area and there was, had been a rocket attack and I went into the hospital to check on what was going on there. And there was a coalition soldier who was wounded, had a severe head and neck injury. And they had just rotated their, their head and neck surgeon out like the day before. And then there was a, there was a gap in the, the next individual arriving. So I was able to just be at the right place, right time and take care of that. I think that there are no coincidences. I think that some of those experiences, as I said, it's about being there. And I, I'm so proud of what we did in the theater and the American military medical capability that we, we were able to build and, and provide for folks over there. These guys who were wounded today had it tomorrow because we had folks there who could take care of them. And it's, it's unbelievable. And they, I know at the height of the war, you were, your survivability was going to be greater in, uh, in Afghanistan than it would be in many, you know, many cities in the United States if you were a trauma victim. 
So you finished your career in the military serving as the director of the Defense Health Agency's healthcare operations. How do the DHA and military services synchronize their priorities regarding medicine? And I'm talking about the priority of having a ready medical force, having the people that deploy in medicine be ready to take care of whatever they're you know, confronted with, having a medically ready force where people are healthy enough to deploy, but also having a fiscally responsible healthcare system for taking care of beneficiaries. How does the DHA and the military services reconcile all of those priorities? You know, that's the million-dollar question, right? I think you cover a lot of ground there. I think, number one, I think their missions are the same. As we stood up the DHA, remember that the, at the time, the Defense Health Program, the budget for the medical, military medicine was growing. And uh, it was reaching, approaching about 10% of the DOD budget. And that got a lot of folks nervous. So they wanted to look at ways that they could gain efficiencies and actually lower costs. And so that was the challenge. So looking at the concept for the Defense Health Agency was to gain these efficiencies. They looked about across about 10 shared services, so looking at areas like the TRICARE program, pharmacy, public health, IT, logistics, and a number of others. And where can we coalesce? Doug, you're a surgeon. I mean, you know, if you left it to the surgeons, they'd have 20 different types of gloves on the shelf. And so is that really efficient? You know, so have someone who could uh, kind of harness that and, and, and standardize to optimize a little bit, lower costs, but maintaining quality. It was never about cutting corners so that we dropped that because, again, we're you know, all-time highs for survivability in combat, and that's something we want to build on. So the DHA was, was stood up with that in mind, but readiness is the center. Remember the old uh, military health system quad aim chart that then the ASD at the time was Dr. Woodson, and he built that with his focus on lowering costs and improving care, but right in the center of that thing was readiness. And that's, that speaks the same language for all the services, Army, Navy, Air Force. They all want the same thing, take care of their soldiers, airmen, Marines, sailors. And so looking at the program at DHA, TRICARE, for example, is the number one services acquisition contract in the DOD. You know, a $50 billion a year proposal here that we can't fight without. So when I went to the DHA, we stood up, we looked at the shared services. At that time, the healthcare operations position that I was in, and also the CMO, chief medical officer, I had TRICARE under me and also pharmacy. So we had a lot going on. So we renegotiated the, the next generation contracts for TRICARE. We did that. And we also made some adjustments to the contracts for pharmacy. And we saved a significant amount of money. I think I recall leaving when I left the DHA that the, some of these changes we'd put in place, our director at the time was Doug Robb, Lieutenant General Doug Robb from the Air Force who's another great leader. He let us maneuver in that space. We, we gained efficiencies, we lowered costs, and I think it was $25 billion in outright savings over the course of that time. We bent the cost curve because you expect about a 6% inflation in your uh, cost of care. We bent that cost curve with some of these programs we put in place. So that's the positive thing. Congress and others took notice of that, certainly. They wanted, they wanted to see some more of that. And so that's how you've seen the expansion of the role of the DHA, the Defense Health Agency, over time. I think that there was a lot of resistance from the services, and that's some of the obstacles that we faced with this, uh, resisting that change. But the DHA, if anything else, you've seen them continue to be empowered with uh, additional responsibilities over time. So you mentioned one obstacle to the DHA, but what are and continue to be the most significant obstacles in standing up and executing the DHA plan? Is that a softball for me? There's really no shortage of challenges. I think that I mentioned this resistance to change, and, and that's a very common one. But be clear. The Defense Health Agency is the future, and I think it needs to morph into a Defense Health Command. And that's 
in accordance with the National Defense Authorization Act, I think of 2018. They said do a feasibility study on that and look at a defense health command. They had a couple other things in there too, which none of them were ever completed, by the way. It's time to dust those off. I think those obstacles will remain until you have a defense health command with command authority in place. And uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, the new Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, General Martinez Lopez, who's a very experienced uh, individual, retired Army doctor, two-star. And I'm hopeful that when he becomes the next Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, that he'll take some action to address this. I think one of the things we really need, one of the obstacles we have right now he can address is a need for a strategic plan for the military health system. We don't have one and haven't had one for a number of years. So my recommendation would be he get some of the, the dozen or so senior leaders in, from military medicine in a room and do some tabletop exercises and, and develop a strategic plan. I think that's that would eliminate a lot of these obstacles. So upon your retirement from military medicine, you assumed the presidency of the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, the military medical school. Why does the United States have a taxpayer-funded medical school? You know, it's it goes back 50 years. This is the 50th year, actually, uh, for the Uniformed Service University. It started in 72. You think about it at the time, the Vietnam War was winding down. The draft was going away. And so some smart folks here ahead of us, Secretary Melvin Laird, for example, David Packard, a number of others, Congressman Bear and others, they saw that there was a real need to have kind of a West Point for docs. And they maneuvered to get this school established in 1972. And over the years, it's evolved in its capability. And so now you have certainly training physicians, advanced practice nurses, graduate dentistry, allied healthcare professionals, and a tremendous, tremendous medical research capability at the university. So it's this capability which needs to be preserved. It's taxpayer funded, sure. And as far as the docs specifically, we produce at the university about 15 to 20% of the annual requirement. As I said, when I was the court chief, I always knew I got about 60 or so high quality individuals out of the university. And I thought I knew a lot about the university until I came there as the president. I learned a lot more. But as time goes by, you'll see that more than half of your senior physicians in the military are USU products. I don't think it's because they have a longer obligation to serve. I think they have a greater propensity to serve in many ways. They kind of get the it. And so we're training military physicians, not just physicians that happen to go to including sales and pick up a uniform. So they have a reason to stay. And I think that's vested in When I went to the university, I think it was in 2018, we produced a, a cost analysis because I always asked the question, I said, well, how much does it cost us to produce a doctor? And you get these obscure answers and no one had ever really done the analysis on it for many years. So we did, uh, we had the Institute of Defense Analysis. We asked them to help us out and they did a great job. Now, my task to them was not just the cost analysis to produce a physician, but what's the value proposition of the university? And if value equals quality over cost, I think they did a tremendous job. And, and that report, which was published in 2019, I think, was really the basis that I used to help defend the university from those budgeteers and others who tried to close us later on. We had this analysis completed, and it really was, was I think, uh, a valuable statement on what the university provides to the capability of the force. And that's why it must be maintained. Closing the university would be analogous, I think, to closing one of the service academies for the line. So in late 2020, there was a move by senior Department of Defense leaders recommending your dismissal from your position at USU over specific management decisions, despite USU Board of Regents and congressional support. Ultimately, you completed your term and left the university. Is there anything about the circumstances surrounding that leadership change that have been misconstrued by the public or you feel needs to be better clarified? Well, Doug, there's a lot of certainly a lot of tales out there. Number one, I did not resign. This was a politically motivated attack. 
And I was able to complete my term. I had a five-year term. I completed that. Now, our Board of Regents had unanimously uh, voted for my extension. And what happened was with the new administration, the Board of Regents was suspended. So we didn't have a Board of Regents. And they've just recently been the Secretary of Defense approved them for reconstitution. So we've been without a board for about eight months or so. So I completed my term end of month. What was it? July, I think. It was my five-year term. And because there's no board there to kind of promote uh, the extension at the time, so there's a gap. And I appointed a, an inter- intermediate president, Dr. Bill Roberts, and he's doing a great job over there. It was never my intention to stay, although the board unanimously wanted me to stay. I wanted to uh, maybe stay long enough because I could conduct a legitimate search for a new president. And we had some reaccreditation uh, work that was going on at the time. But the real the reason that, that they were trying to remove me at the time was <clears throat> the allegation that I had failed to take appropriate action with respect to some activities of a former dean of school medicine. And, uh, you know, the investigation proved that I had acted appropriately. I had done the right thing. And that's that's my business. That's university business. And they that really wasn't the reason they were using. The real reason was it was politically motivated. Some of the budgeteers at CAPE and uh, the former ASD wanted to close the university. And they wanted to outsource a lot of military medicine, closing hospitals and doing some other things. So we were successful in defending against the university closure. In fact, all the cuts that they had proposed, we got back, everything restored. And in fact, we got more in our budget than that because we had friends in Congress and other places that do recognize the, the value proposition of the university, thankfully. And I was also heavily engaged in preventing some of the other MHS cuts. The MTFs, the military treatment facilities, the hospitals, they went to close and cutting a bunch of research programs, et cetera. So you're going to make enemies that way. But you want to protect, again, it's our responsibility as professionals. Those of us that do have the experience is to protect that capability. And so I, I would do it again. Sometimes you get, to, you get to take the hard road on that. And we did the right thing, not only protecting the university from closure, but preventing a lot of these other cuts, which really would have, would have decremented our ability to provide the the care in the future that we want, or to train the next generation of, of healthcare professionals and uh, to do the research that we need that applies to uh, force medical readiness. What do you see are the biggest challenges facing military medicine today? Kevin, where are you coming up with these questions? I think that one of the biggest challenges I think we have is sustaining the, cap- the capabilities that we've, we have within military medicine. That is our training base, our, our GME programs, our hospitals. These are vital capabilities for the force. And I think that sustaining the capability means that we've got to keep them busy, a busy hospital is a ready hospital. So this outsourcing or this uh, purchase care side of the house needs to be addressed for us so that we can make sure that we're recapturing workload and we're training the force appropriately. I would say another challenge for us is probably the, uh, the challenge of embracing change. It's inevitable. And I still see a lot of resistance to the change. Folks that are looking at things in the rearview mirror and think it's going to go back the way it was, it's not going to. In many ways, I think that you know, the journey that we're on in military medicine is analogous to the special operations community. There was a lot of push for them to be more joint and to, and to be more collaborative. And then it wasn't until Desert One, the fiasco, the tragedy in the desert, the loss of life because there's a lack of communication and coordination between some of the forces that Senator Nunn and others wrote in the law. And I think that that's what's needed here is, is a law that says you will have a defense health command, and it's going to look like the following. We want to have the right leadership in place. Another challenge. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution says civilians are in charge. And for political appointees, we may or may not have someone who's, who's very experienced. That's why we must have expertly, I think, developed and prepared uniform medical leaders so that we can advise and we can lead to make sure that the, the right decisions are being made. And I, I, again, I really hope, I, I think that our new ASD, I'm very hopeful for him and his success, uh, that he can organize 
and kind of developed a strategic plan that is so needed here to get more of a unity of effort and uh, to eliminate some of the the infighting that we're seeing and the resistance we have here. If you look back over the past several years, the DHA mission was codified. And then when there was resistance to what the DHA was trying to do to accomplish its mission, the frustration level would grow in, in members of Congress and they would pass another directive that enabled or expanded the authorities of the DHA. One thing they don't have is they don't have command authority yet. And I think that's the next important step. So when the history books are written 50 to 100 years from now, what would you want people to remember about you and your time serving in military medicine? Well, it's not so much about me. It never really has been. It is a team sport. And we're also fortunate, I think, in military medicine. I'm very proud of my service, my time in service. I got very few regrets. I'd do it again. I think the historical perspective is there's so many great Americans that are here before us setting conditions. And in military medicine, we get the, the opportunity to work with some tremendously talented people. I mean, great Americans, really, that, that could do so many other things, but they choose to kind of share the burden of serving this noble calling, this sacred mission. And I think that's what it is. It's, it's about the team. It's about the preserving the capability. And also, Doug and Kevin, I want to thank you both for your service. Doug, now that you're retired and Kevin's continuing on active duty, but thanks. You're in that class of folks that has a lot of options in front of you, but you chose to be here. And I think that's the number one most important thing is to be here so you can take care of these, these wonderful men and women who raise the right hand and uh, volunteer to defend our nation. So it's a, it's a tremendous way of life. And I would challenge folks out there to, to increase their mentoring for folks to talk to the folks. One thing I emphasized at the university was our leadership development program. I think that we would all agree that that's a kind of a void or uh, a gap in our professional education is that leadership development. And so we've emphasized that university with the Griffith Institute and um, to institutionalize some of those leadership development programs for our folks so that they have the skills that they need to go along with their, their great clinical skills that they're obtaining in our system. You know, I, I kind of talked a minute ago, I referred to the, the Walker dip. And one way that we can prevent that from happening, I believe, is, is with uh, podcasts like this, efforts like what you guys are doing, because people are going to listen to it and they're going to think about something that's going to help them to instill or make that connection with the past. And that's what it's about because we are really in some trouble here in the military health system. I've never seen it this bad. I'm more worried than I've ever been. And there's some, some changes have to happen. But one of the biggest challenges that we have coming forward, I mean this, is there's some folks up in the Pentagon and they've got a little sticky note and it says, close USU, cut the MHS. And it's on the wall behind them. About every few years, they peel it off and they want to go down that road again. And we've defended them. We beat them back on this one. There's no free chicken, and it'll happen again, and we know that. But we've got to be prepared to make the cogent, intelligent argument of why that is the wrong answer. You all remember the planet slides we had for the budget activity groups? If they want to save money, the big way you save money is like we did early in the DHA, is look at you know that purchase care bill. And how can you, that's Jupiter. How can you shrink that pie a little bit? And you get your savings. When they look at the university and, and these education elements, that's, that's Pluto. Quit picking on Pluto. And uh, if you do the hard work of looking at the private sector care and how we can do there, use things like the Mission Act that is already signed in law where we can take those patients from the VA, bring them back into the DOD facilities, and keep those skill sets up of our, of our medical providers. That's what we need to implement. That, it's in law, but we haven't implemented it. The VA is spending a billion dollars a month on private sector care, and they want to give some of it back to the DOD. And no one at the DOD knows what to do with it. As a matter of fact, the previous administration was pushing back. Some of those guys are pushing back because they wanted to outsource all that capability. They wanted to close it down. So they're looking at their, their future jobs. We're going to be with some of these the private sector. So we need to stand up and protect the capability. 
and make sure they don't develop a hollow force on the medical side. And the thing is, there's there's just so much wisdom and so much knowledge out there that it's not getting captured. And we tend to rediscover things we've already known, and we just don't learn the lessons of history. And hopefully this plays a part in helping not letting that happen. Yeah, I think that because of the, well, I agree with what you said, and uh, the Griffith Institute, I named it after General Ryan Griffith, the former vice who was on our board, who passed away a couple of years ago. You know, he was a, a tremendous leader. We named the center after him because he was big into leader development, mentorship. And so it, it constitutes not only our leadership development programs, but also has the history program in it. And it has the ethics, medical ethics program, which we stood up for the DOD in there. And so you're coalescing all these capabilities to really what we're talking about is building professionalism. It, it adds to the it of why we do what we do. You know, so the guys, the light bulb goes off and they go, yeah. I mean, you, you've seen it yourself, though. You've seen it so many times when these guys come back and they, they, they realize for the first time in their career that they're really involved in something. This is what they're about. And that's certainly why I stayed. I know it's why you stayed, because you're seeing this is really important. And they've spent a lot of time. I used to tell the, I told the chief of staff of the Army, who's a friend of mine, this. I said, it takes 10 weeks, sir, to grow one of you as a pilot. It takes 10 years to grow one of us. So that investment is well worth your time. And these guys want to, they want to do right. They're not going to, they're not looking to do wrong. They want to do the right thing here. So we've got to maintain that capability so that they can, you know, again, be the finest medical force that there is, the world's ever seen. So you know, thank you very much for what you do. And, and I want to thank everyone out there. So we've been speaking with retired Army Major General Dr. Tom Thomas on War Docs Podcast. Tom, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Hopefully folks will get something out of it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.